You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Welcome to the Collective Cafe, a virtual coffee experience which takes place every single Monday through Friday, 8 to 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time in both Alpha Collective's Discord, that's discord.gg forward slash alpha collective and startup clubs house in clubhouse it's free it always will be free there are no strings attached there is no bait and switch lurk or listen only chat with one another in our back chat or even come onto stage the coffee shop is open for business whether you're on the treadmill getting the kids ready for school getting yourself ready for work commuting into the big bad city or maybe just even commuting from your bedroom to your home office on Monday, we manifest. On Tuesday, we talk thought leadership. On Wellness Wednesday, we discuss mental health, wellness, and life skills. On Thursday, we do live book reads and discussions with the author. And then on Friday, it's No Agenda Friday, where there is no agenda. Start your day off on the right foot, on the front foot, with virtual coffee, with the collective cafe, where we mastermind, we manifest, we collaborate, we help one another at the business of Web3 or anything else that intersects, whether it's culture, collaboration, creativity, innovation, disruption, entrepreneurship, or coaching. So give us a subscribe, bit.ly forward slash collective cafe to go, or a review on your favorite podcast platform if you're listening on demand or of course join us every day live it is addictive and remember it is a safe welcoming space and you will never ever be put on the spot this is alpha collectives collective cafe my name is joseph jaffe good morning everybody it is october 12th 802 a.m i got a really really uh, wonderful uh, email uh, from someone who's subscribed and uh, and listening so we'll shout out to Ronnie um, who uh, I don't know how he discovered the collective cafe me the collective cafe to go but he has been listening and downloading and I'm so glad that this is making a difference and an impact uh, on your life. Today, we are doing this live in uh, LinkedIn, and we're doing it, obviously, uh, in Discord. Hello to our ever-present Rhonda. Um, We are doing a a live book read of Happier. And, um, you know, I think, I mean, these are obviously, this week I spent a bit of time uh, talking about authentic voice, etc. You know, I think... I think it's it's important to recognize that our lives are essentially manic depressive without you know without making light on someone who really is manic depressive um I mean 
you know, we, we kind of live in this non-diagnosed reality of the highs can be super high, the lows can be super low, and there's constant swings. And we're also expected, you know, to compartmentalize. You know, as I was saying the other day, you know, when we're talking about work-life balance, everything everything kind of comes together, doesn't it? Um, everything seems to come together when we um, when we think about it, when we actually um, you know realize that we are as beings, um, as organisms, um, we are so fluid. You know, we we are this mix. We're not binary. We're not machines. Machines are binary. Machines have ones and zeros. We don't. We can't just switch on, off, on, off, on, off. Um, And it's hard for us. You know, it's hard to be happy when, uh, or, or, or think about happiness or pursue happiness when the world is in turmoil. But yet we have to. Um, you know, for me, how do I put all this together? Um, you know, I actually, like, it's a literally a lesson that I've taught, but maybe not this personally, is this whole concept of um, authentic voice and what I would call authentic place, which means there's a time and a place for everything. Um, there's a place for everything, more importantly, a place and a time, I should say. So some mediums, um, I'm going to be a little bit more businessy. Some mediums, I'm going to be less businessy um, regarding regarding what's happening right now in Israel. In some cases, I'm going to probably spend uh, find my voice and a different version of my voice or different emotion on Facebook versus Twitter uh, versus. Instagram, for example, even within Instagram, um, what I've been doing is I've been using my stories to be 100% wall-to-wall coverage, um, basically taking other people's Instagram posts and amplifying it because I have a larger audience. I don't want that to be cluttered with anything else so that my, my story feed is completely full and full and dedicated to what is going on. Um, and it's but but yet my Instagram posts are not. So that's one way that I've found a way to express myself because that's really what we're talking about. Also, there's different emotions. There's there's anger, there's frustration, there's despair, um, there's sadness, there's pride. Those emotions also can find their way to different mediums and different platforms at different times. And um, it is the human way of compartmentalizing, the human way of doing what a machine cannot do. Um, And same applies with respect to changing avatars, etc. It's, um, you just do what you feel is right. You do what makes sense. And that's what I've been doing. So, it's time to uh, to talk happier. We are chapter three, page thirty one, and uh, the chapter is called "Happiness Explained." It starts off with a quote from Aristotle: 
Happiness is the meaning and the purpose of life, the whole aim and end of human existence. That's interesting. Happiness is the meaning and the purpose of life, the whole aim and end of human existence. We're all familiar with children's insatiable curiosity. Once they begin to question a certain phenomenon in the wonderful world around them, they do not relent. Why does it rain? Why does water rise to the sky? Why does water become gas? Why do the clouds not fall? Whether or not children get actual answers to their questions is of little relevance. Their relentless probing follows the pattern of the infinitely regressive why. Regardless of the answer to a question, the child persists with another, but why? However, one question allows an adult to end the onslaught of whys without any feelings of guilt or inadequacy. This question question is, why do you want to be happy? When questioning why we want certain things other than happiness, we can always question the value with another why. For example, why are you training so hard? Why do you want to win this prize? Why do you want to be rich and famous? Why do you want a fancy car? a promotion at work, a year off from work. When the question is, why do you want to be happy? The answer is simple and definitive. We pursue happiness because it is in our nature to do so. When the answer to a question is because it will make me happy, nothing can challenge the validity and finality of the answer. Happiness is the highest on the hierarchy of goals, the end toward which all other ends lead. The British philosopher David Hume argues that the great end of all human industry is the attainment of happiness. For this, for this were arts, for this were arts invented, sciences cultivated, laws ordained, and societies modelled. Wealth, fame, admiration, and all other goals are subordinate and secondary to happiness. Whether our desires are material or social, they are means toward one end, happiness. So here's a time in. Do the infinitely regressive why exercise for a couple of things that you want, whether a bigger house, a promotion, or anything else. Notice how many whys it takes you to reach happiness. Well, in the interest of doing this, I will continue to put myself out there. Um, I want Joseph Jaffe is not famous to end up on CNBC. Why, Joseph? Why do you want it on CNBC? I want it on CNBC because I want to be able to reach more people. I want to build audience. I want more people to be exposed to the content. But why, Joseph? Because I want them to be unstuck, return to growth, become forever changed. I want to share. I want to spread hope, positivity, and optimism in a time of despair. But why, Joseph? I guess because I want them to be happy. And I want to be happy as well. That would make me happy to be able to be doing what I love, being true to myself, and staying the course. And obviously what I did there was I weaved in 
a lot of the narrative of my new book too. Works nicely. Just a couple of thoughts that they were interesting in the section. Um, not that I'm pushing back with this wonderful book, but when the question is, why do you want to be happy? The answer is simple and definitive. And definitive. But some people don't want to be happy or they don't believe they deserve to be happy. But what I will say is that everyone ultimately wants to be happy. So it almost is a bit of a contradiction. Why do you want to be happy? Well, everyone wants to be happy, but some people just don't believe that they deserve it. And of course, everyone deserves happiness. All right, let's continue reading. For those not convinced by the argument that happiness should be pursued because it is the highest end, there is much research that suggests that happiness is also a means toward toward higher levels of overall success. In a review of the research on well-being, psychologist Sonia Lyubomirsky, Laura King, that was easier, and Ed Diener note, numerous studies show that happy individuals are successful across multiple life domains, including marriage, friendship, income, work performance, and health. The research illustrates that the relationship between happiness and success is reciprocal. Not only can success, be it at work or in love, contribute to happiness, but happiness also leads to more success. Now this, I'll, I'll just say very quickly, in the new book, um, I dedicate an entire chapter to this. I say, does money buy happiness? And I actually conclude with happiness buys money. All else being equal, happy people have better relationships, are more likely to thrive at work, and also live better and longer. Happiness is a worthwhile pursuit, whether as an end in itself or as a means towards other ends. Happiness is dot, dot, dot. Just when we believe that we have satisfied a child's curiosity, she will come up with another ploy. From the infinitely regressive why, she will change course to the infinitely regressive what and the infinitely regressive how. The questions, what is happiness, and how can we attain happiness, require a more elaborate answer. I define happiness as the overall experience of pleasure and meaning. A happy person enjoys positive emotions while perceiving her life as purposeful. The definition does not pertain to a single moment, but to a generalized aggregate of one's experiences. A person can endure emotional pain at times, and still be happy overall. We may think about this definition in terms of the happiness archetype. Pleasure is about the experience of positive emotions in the here and now, about present benefit, meaning comes from having a sense of purpose from the future benefit of the actions. So you have pleasure, which is present, meaning, which is future. Pleasure. Emotion, of course, plays a pivotal role in all our pursuits, including our pursuit of happiness. It is nearly impossible for us to imagine a life devoid of emotion. Think of an emotionless robot that, other than the the capacity for emotions, has exactly the same physical and cognitive attributes as, as humans. The robot thinks and behaves in the same way that humans do. It can discuss deep philosophical issues and follow complex logic. It can dig ditches and build skyscrapers. As sophisticated as the robot is, however, 
It lacks all motivation to act. This is because even the most basic drive drives are dependent on emotions, the one thing this robot lacks. The robot could not feel the satisfaction of eating or the need to eat. It could not experience the pain associated with hunger or the satisfaction of, of, sati- of sati- satiation. The robot would not pursue food, and given that it has the same physical needs of humans, would soon die. But let us assume that the robot has been programmed to eat and drink regularly. Even then, despite continuing to live on the physical level, the robot would have neither motivation nor incentive to act. Attaining social standing, acquiring wealth or falling in love would make no difference to it. Emotions cause motion. They provide a motive that drives our action. That's a great quote. Emotions cause motion. They provide a motive that drives our action. The very language we use suggests an essential truth that emotion, motion, and motivation are intimately linked. In Latin, moverse, mov, sorry, mover, M-O-V-E-R-E, motion, means to move, and the prefix E means away. The word motive, source of motivation, comes from motivum, which means a moving cause. Emotions move us away from a desireless state, providing us motivation to act. The the neurologist Antonio Damasio provides an illuminating real-life example of the link between emotion and motivation. Following surgery for a brain tumor, one of Damasio's patients, Elliot, retained all of his cognitive abilities, his memory, mathematical ability, perceptual ability, and language skills. However, the part of Elliot's frontal lobe connected to the ability to experience emotions was damaged in the operation. Elliot's condition was similar to that of the emotionless robot. He had all the physical and cognitive characteristics of a normal human being, but the system involved in feeling and emotion was damaged. Elliot's life changed dramatically. Prior to the surgery, he was a happily married, successful lawyer, but after the operation, despite the fact that his rational brain was not damaged, Elliot's behavior became so unbearable for those around him that his wife left him. He lost his job, and he wasn't able to hold another job for very long. The most striking thing about his predicament was his apathetic reaction. He no longer cared about his relationship or his career. If we were devoid of emotion and hence of motivation to act, we would aspire to nothing. We would remain indifferent to our actions and thoughts as well as their ramifications because emotion is the foundation of motivation. It naturally plays a central role in our motivation to pursue happiness. However, merely being capable of emotion, any emotion, is not enough. To be happy, we need the experience of positive emotion. Pleasure is a prerequisite for a fulfilling life. According to the psychologist Nathaniel Brandon, pleasure for man is not a luxury, but a profound psychological need. The total absence of pleasure and the experience of constant emotional pain preclude the possibility of a happy life. When I speak of pleasure, I'm not referring to the experience of a constant high or ecstasy. 
We all experience emotional highs and lows. We can experience sadness at times when we suffer loss or failure and still lead a happy life. In fact, the unrealistic expectation of a constant high will inevitably lead to a disappointment and feeling of inadequacy and hence to negative emotions. Happiness does not require constant experience of ecstasy, nor does it require an unbroken chain of positive emotions. While the happy person experiences highs and lows, his overall state of being is positive. Most of the time he is propelled by positive emotions, such as joy and affection, rather than the negative ones, such as anger and guilt. Pleasure is the rule, pain the exception. To be happy, we have to feel that on the whole, whatever sorrows, trials and tribulations we may encounter, we still experience the joy of being alive. But is living an emotionally gratifying life really enough? Is is experiencing positive emotions a sufficient condition for happiness? What of a psychotic who experiences euphoric delusions? What of those who consume ecstasy-inducing drugs or spend their days leisurely sprawled on the beach? Are these people happy? The answer is no. Experiencing positive emotions is necessary but not sufficient for happiness. So here is another time in. Make a mental list of things, from little things to big things, that provide you with pleasure. Meaning, the philosopher Robert Nozick, Nozick, in Anarchy, State, and Utopia, describes a thought experiment that can help us differentiate between the experience of a person on ecstasy-inducing drugs and an experience of true happiness. Nozick asks us to imagine a machine that could provide us with the experience of writing a great poem or bringing about world peace or loving someone and being loved in return or any other experience we might desire. The machine could afford us the emotional experience of being in love, which would feel the same as actually being in love. We would be unaware that we were plugged into the machine. That is, we would believe that we were actually spending time with our beloved. Nozick asks whether, given the opportunity, we would choose to plug into the machine for the rest of our lives. Another way of asking this question is, would we be happy if we were plugged into the machine for the rest of our lives? The answer for most of us would clearly be no. We would not want to be hooked up to a machine permanently because we care about things in addition to how our lives feel to us from the inside. Few of us would think that only a person's experiences matter. We want not only to take pleasure in experiences, we want them to be so. There is then more to happiness than the positive emotions. Circumventing the cause of these emotions through a machine or drugs would be tantamount to living a lie, given the choice between a machine-generating feeling that we had brought about world peace and a less powerful feeling derived from actually helping one person, we would most likely choose the latter. It is as if we have an internal mechanism that demands more than the presence than the present sensation that we feel. We need the cause of our emotions to be meaningful. We want to know that our actions have an actual effect in the world, not just that we feel that they do. As far as emotions are concerned, Human beings are not far removed from animals, and some of the higher animals, like chimpanzees, have an emotional brain similar to ours. 
This is not surprising because without emotions or sensations, in the case of some animals, there would be no drive to do anything and a living organism would not sustain itself. Without emotions or sensations, animals like the emotionless robot would not move. However, while our capacity for emotions is similar to that of other animals, we are fundamentally different. The fact that we can reflect on the cause of our emotions is one of the characteristics that distinguish us. We have the capacity to reflect on our feelings, thoughts, and actions. We have the capacity to be conscious of our consciousness and our experiences. We also have the capacity for spirituality. The Oxford English Dictionary defines spirituality as the real sense of significance of something. Animals cannot live a spiritual life. They cannot endow their actions with meaning beyond the pleasure or pain that those actions yield. When speaking of a meaningful life, we often talk of having a sense of purpose. But what we sometimes fail to recognize is that finding the sense of purpose entails more than simply setting goals. Having goals or even reaching them does not guarantee that we are leading a purposeful existence. To experience a sense of purpose, the goals we set for ourselves need to be intrinsically meaningful. We could set ourselves the goal of scoring top grades in college or owning a large house, yet still feel empty. To live a meaningful life, we must have self-generated purpose that possesses personal significance rather than one that is dictated by society's standards and expectations. When we do experience the sense of purpose, we often feel as though we have found our calling. As George Bernard Shaw said, this is the true joy in life. The being used for a purpose recognized by yourself is a mighty one. Different people find different meaning in things. We may find our calling in starting up a business, working in a homeless shelter, raising children, practicing medicine or making furniture. The important thing is that we choose our purpose in accordance with our own values and passions rather than conforming to others' expectations. An investment banker who finds meaning and pleasure in in her work, who is in it for the right reasons, leads a more spiritual and fulfilling life than a monk who is in his field for the wrong reasons. Idealism and Realism I once asked a friend what his calling in life was. He told me that he does not think about his life in terms of calling or some higher purpose. I'm not an idealist, he said, but a realist. The realist is considered the pragmatist, the person who has both feet firmly planted on the ground. The idealist is seen as the dreamer, the person who has her eyes towards the horizon and devotes her time to thinking about calling and purpose. Yet when we set realism and idealism in opposition to one another, when we live as though having ideals and dreams were unrealistic and detached, we are allowing a false dichotomy to hold us back. Being an idealist is being a realist in the deepest sense. It is being true to our real nature. I like that quote. Being an idealist is being a realist in the deepest sense. It is being true to our real nature. We are so constituted that we actually need our lives to have meaning. Without a higher purpose, a calling, an ideal, we cannot attain our full potential for happiness While I'm not advocating dreaming overdoing, both are important, there is a significant truth that many realists, rat racers, mostly ignore. To be idealistic 
is to be realistic. Being an an idealist is about having a sense of purpose that encompasses our life as a whole. But for us to be happy, it is not enough to experience our life as meaningful on the general level of the big picture. We need to find meaning on the specific level of our daily existence as well. For example, in addition to having the general purpose of creating a happy family or dedicating our life to liberating the oppressed, we also need a specific purpose related to those goals, such as having lunch with our child or taking part in protest marches. It is often difficult to sustain ourselves with the thought of a general sense of purpose that lies far off on the horizon. We need a more specific and tangible sense that we are doing something meaningful next week, tomorrow, later today. Here is uh, another time in. Think of the things that provide you with meaning. What can already does provide a sense of purpose to your life as a whole? What daily or weekly activities provide you with meaning? According to French Renaissance philosopher Michel de Montaigne, 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 the great and glorious masterpiece of man is to live with purpose. Having a purpose, a goal that provides a sense of direction, imbues our individual actions with meaning and from experiencing life as a collection of disjointed pieces. We begin to experience it as a masterpiece. An overarching purpose can unify individual activities, just like the overarching theme of a symphony unifies the individual notes. In and of itself, a note does not amount to much, but it becomes significant and beautiful when part of a common theme, a common purpose. I must say, I find um, this to be, the the book is quite heady. Um, I'm not loving this chapter as much as the others. Um, I find it to be like quite intellectual and a little bit too cerebral. I wonder what you think. Um, if you, I mean, this point about m- purpose and meaning and, um, I mean, I get it. I get it. Uh, let's continue. Potential and happiness. When thinking about the most meaningful life for ourselves, we must also consider our potential and how to make full use of our capacities. While a cow might not seem content with a life spent grazing in the pasture, we cannot be happy simply uh, living simply to gratify our physical desires. Our inborn potential as humans dictates that we do more, that we utilize our full capacities. The happiness that is genuinely satisfying, writes the philosopher Bertrand Russell, is accompanied by the fullest exercise of our faculties and the fullest realization of the world in which we live. This does not mean that a woman who has the potential to be the most influential person in her country cannot be happy unless she becomes president or prime minister, or that a person with the potential to be successful in business cannot be happy unless she makes millions. Becoming the president or a millionaire are external manifestations of potential. What I'm referring to are internal measures of potential. The person with the capacity to be the president could be happy as a scholar of ancient Sanskrit. The person with the capacity to be a millionaire could lead a fulfilling life as a journalist. They can find satisfaction if they feel from within that what they are doing that they are doing things that challenge them, things that use them fully and well. Time in. 
What pursuits would challenge you and fulfill your potential? Success and happiness. Some people might be concerned that pursuing meaning and pleasures over accolades and wealth could come at the price of success. If, for example, grades and getting into the best institutions no longer constitute a strong motivation, might not a student lose his commitment to his schoolwork? If promotions and raises are no longer the ultimate driving force in the workplace, will employees dedicate fewer hours to their jobs? I had similar concerns about my own success as I was contemplating the shift towards the happiness archetype. The no pain, no gain formulas served me well in terms of quantifiable success and I feared that my resolve would weaken, that the next milestone would lose its appeal and no longer sustain me as it did when I was a rat racer. What happened, however, was the exact opposite. The shift from being a rat racer to pursuing happiness is not about working less or with less fervor, but about working as hard or harder at the right activities, those that are a source of both present and future benefit. Similarly, the the shift from hedonism to the pursuit of happiness does not entail having less fun. The difference is that the fun the happy person experiences is sustainable, whereas the fun of the hedonist is ephemeral. The happy person defies the no pain, no gain formula. Defies the no gain, no pain, no gain formula. Let me say that again. I'm tongue tied. The happy person defies the no pain, no gain formula. She enjoys the journey and dedicating herself to a purpose in which she believes attains a better outcome. The need for meaning and pleasure. Just as pleasure is not sufficient for the attainment of happiness, neither is the sense of purpose. Of purpose. First, it is exceedingly difficult to sustain long-term action, regardless of the meaning we assign to it, without enjoying emotional gratification in the present. The prospect of a brighter future can usually keep us motivated for only a limited time. Second, if we did sustain our denial of immediate gratification... As rat racers often do, we most certainly would not be happy. In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl talks about how victims of the Holocaust were able to find meaning in their lives. Despite the physical and emotional torture that these people endured in the concentration camps, some of them found meaning, a sense of purpose in their meager existence. Their purpose could have been to reunite with loved ones or to someday write about what they had lived through however even to suggest that these even to suggest that these people were happy while in the camp is absurd in order to be happy having meaningful having meaning in life is not enough we need the experience of meaning and the experience of positive emotions we need present and future benefit my theory of happiness draws on the words of freud as well as frankel Freud's pleasure principle says that we are fundamentally driven by the instinctual need for pleasure. Frankel argues that we are motivated by a will to meaning rather than by a will to pleasure. He says that striving to find meaning in one's life is the primary motivation force in man. In the context of finding happiness, there is some truth in both Freud's and Frankel's theories. We need to gratify both the will for pleasure, and the will for meaning if we are to lead a fulfilling, happy life. Yeah, I love this. I mean, I love this point. So we are talking, right? We go back to the the episode on the uh, hamburger 
strategy, right? The hamburger that tastes good and is healthy. We're talking about present and future, um, you know, fulfillment or happiness. That is ultimately the quadrant, right? The hedonist uh, only focuses on happiness today and not tomorrow. The uh, rat racer only fo- is only focused on tomorrow. They're doing all these backbreaking sacrifices, you know, being unhappy and miserable today for some kind of future state, which oftentimes uh, never, never comes. Um, and then, of course, there was uh, a fourth quadrant, the nihilism archetype, which is neither happy, I think, uh, in the present or the future, has almost resigned or given up the ability to be happy. Well, now we're talking about this idea of pleasure um, in in the current, in a uh, pleasure in the present, and purpose and meaning in the future. And uh, using Freud and Frankel, I mean, two pretty potent uh, and powerful forces to actually explain how, in fact, um, this all comes together. We, especially in the United States, are often criticized for being a society obsessed with happiness. Self-help books offering quick-fix solutions and a struggle-free life are selling at an unprecedented rate. And there are psychiatrists who prescribe medication at the first sign of emotional discomfort. While the criticism is, to some extent, justified, it identifies the wrong obsession. The obsession is with pleasure, not with happiness. The brave new world of quick fixes does not take into consideration long-term benefits and ignores our need for meaning. True happiness involves some emotional discomfort and difficult experiences, while some self-help books and psychiatric medication attempt to circumvent. Happiness presupposes our having to overcome obstacles. In the world of Frankel, what man actually needs is not a a tensionless state, but rather the striving and struggle for some goal worthy of him. What he needs is not the discharge of tension at any cost, but the call of a potential meaning waiting to be fulfilled by him. As the science of, science of psychiatry, psychiatry advances, it is likely that more and more people are going to be put on medication. While there are certainly many cases in which the use of psychiatric drugs is warranted and necessary, I'm taking issue with the ease with which such medication is dispensed. There is a real danger that with the struggle, meaning too will be medicated away. It's a very powerful quote. There's a very real danger that with the struggle, meaning too will be medicated away. I have to tell you that, um, you know, on a personal note, um, I was taking Lexapro um, until I went to this mindfulness retreat and stopped the Lexapro. Uh, I was on 20 milligrams of Lexapro. Um, I, I was very comfortable on Lexapro. It didn't change me at all. It didn't alter me at all. You know, I was 100% fully functioning, but everything just felt a little, you know, dull, duller. Um, maybe not even dull, but just the emotions that we're talking about, emotions, you know, this brilliant part, uh, Billy, I know you came a little late, but you but pick up the transcript or, or the summary or even the audio, 
this concept that emotions, e-motion, is this idea of moving you. It's all about motives and motivation moving you. You need emotions to move away from a desireless state. And nothing upset me while I was on the Lexapro, nothing. You know, just you know, the sky could have been falling in, you know, the whatever financial concerns I might have had or personal issues. Just It was like, yeah, you know, you know remember Theo from... Uh, the Cosby show, no problem. Like everything was no problem. And, um, you know, and uh, another way, it's like, you know, there's that softener tool, that softener tool that we often have in, in, in like Photoshop that just, you know, as opposed to sharpen, this softens everything. It just makes everything a little bit more blurry. Um, that is kind of how um, I felt um, in that situation. Um we should also remember that going through difficult times augments our capacity for pleasure. It keeps us from taking pleasure for granted, reminds us to be grateful for all the large and small pleasures in our lives. Being grateful in this way can itself be a source of real meaning and pleasure. There is a synergistic relationship between pleasure and meaning, between present and future benefit. When we derive a sense of purpose from what we do, our experience of pleasure is intensified and taking pleasure in an activity can make our experience of it all the more meaningful. So here is another time in for you to think about and me. Think back to a difficult or painful experience you had. What did you learn from it? In what ways did you grow? I mean, I've gone through this whole time in experience going through PQ, positive intelligence, um, and actually realizing through this whole experience, you know, that everything that happens to you happens for you, that everything is a gift. Um, so I've actually gone through that by looking at my life, 0 to 10, 11 to 20, 21 to 30, so on and so forth, and looking at the worst thing that happened to me during that decade and what I learned from it and what positive, what positivity could or might have come out of it. All right, so just to let you know, we have uh, just about four pages left and then would love uh, anyone who wants to come on stage, um, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Quantity and quality. We all enjoy and derive meaning from different activities and to varying degrees. For example, writing provides me with both present and future benefit, but writing for more than three hours a day bores me. Watching two movies a week contributes to my happiness, whereas spending four hours a day in front of a screen over time will most likely frustrate me. Just because an activity provides us with meaning and pleasure does not mean that we can be happy doing it all the time. To extend the food motif beyond the hamburger, I will introduce what I've come to call the lasagna principle. The notion that our capacity to enjoy different activities is limited and unique. Lasagna is my favorite food, and every time I visit my parents, my mother prepares a tray of it, which I promptly devour. This does not, however, mean that I want to eat lasagna all day and every day. The same principle applies to my favorite activities, such as writing and watching movies, as well as to my favorite people. Just because my family is the most meaningful thing in my life doesn't mean that spending eight hours a day with them is what would make me happiest. And not wanting to spend all my waking hours with them does not imply that I love them any less. I derive a great deal of pleasure and meaning from being with other people, but I also need my daily quota of solitude. Identifying the right activity and then the right quantity for each activity leads to the highest quality of life. I'll read that quote again. 
Identifying the right activity and then the right quantity of each activity leads to the highest quality of life. The best method of maximizing our levels of happiness is trial and error, paying attention to the quality of our inner experiences. Yet most of us do not take the time to ask ourselves the question of questions because we're too busy. As Thoreau says, however, life is too short to be in a hurry. If we are always on the go, we are reacting to the exigent. I know the word is exigent. Exigencies. Exigencies? I just can't get that word out. We are reacting to the exigencies of day-to-day life rather than allowing ourselves the space to create a happy life. Abraham Maslow maintains that a person cannot choose wisely for a life unless he dares to listen to himself, his own self, at each moment in life. Wow. A person cannot choose wisely for a life unless he dares to listen to himself, his own self, at each moment in his life. It is important to put time aside to take Maslow's dare, to ask ourselves the type of questions that can help us choose wisely. Are the things that I'm doing meaningful to me? Are they pleasurable? Is my mind telling me that I should be doing different things with my time? Is my heart telling me that I must change my life? We have to listen, really listen to our hearts and minds, our emotion and our reason. Now, at the end of the book, there are some exercises at the end of the chapter. Um, I'm going to skip to that and I'm just going to read one more section at the end. Uh, I guess this is, um, I guess this is an exercise Uh, But this seems like a really good one, so I'm going to read this, and if there's time, I'll do the last one. This one's called Integrity Mirror. Make a list of the things that are most meaningful and pleasurable to you that make you happiest. For example, a list could include family, exercising, promoting human rights around the world, listening to music, and so on. Um, Next, I suppose I could put the Collective Cafe in that for me. Next to each of the items on your list, write down how much time per week or month you devote to it. With or without the help of the map you made in the preceding exercise. Okay, so now I have to tell you what that map is. Uh, It is, damn it, okay. I'm going to have to go back and read the first one. It's called Mapping Your Life. Though it is difficult to quantify internal states of mind and heart, it is still possible to evaluate our lives in terms of happiness and gain insight into how we can become happier. We could begin by recording our daily activities and evaluating them according to to how pleasurable and meaningful they are. Devoting a few minutes at the end of the day to write down and reflect upon how we spend our time can help us recognize important patterns. For example, we might realize that we spend a significant proportion of our time in activities that provide future benefit, but that we do not enjoy, or doing things that provide us with neither meaning nor pleasure. We can then evaluate our lives through the lens of happiness and decide to add more meaning and pleasurable pleasurable experiences. While there are basic principles that guide us toward the good life, finding pleasure and meaning, for instance, there is no universal prescription for it. It is self-evident that human beings are complex, multifaceted, and different. Each person is unique, a world unto himself. By zooming in on my day-to-day activities, I can see beyond the general principles that govern a life and identify the unique needs and wants of my life. Okay, So, for a period of a week or two, record your daily activities. At the end of each day, write down how much time you spent 
from half an hour emailing to two hours watching TV. This does not need to be a precise by-the-minute account of your day, but it should provide you with an overall sense of what your days look like. At the end of the week, create a table listing, and okay, so here's the exercise, table listing each of your activities, the amount of time you devote to each one, and how much meaning and pleasure each one provides. You can use a scale of one through five, with one indicating no meaning or pleasure, and five, and five signifying very high meaning or pleasure. Next to the amount of time, indicate whether you would like to spend more or less. Um, so this is interesting. Whether you'd like to spend more or less of your time on the activity. If you'd like to spend more time, write plus next to it. If you'd like to spend a lot more time, put plus plus. If you'd like to spend less time on the activity, put a minus and a lot less time, minus minus. If you're satisfied with the amount of time you're spending on a particular activity, or if it is not possible to change the amount of time you devote to it, write an equal sign next to it. Okay, so now the integrity uh, mirror says, make a list of the things that are most meaningful and pleasurable to you that make you happiest. Um, Next to each of the items, write down how much time per week or month you devote to it. With or without the help of the map you made in the preceding exercise, ask yourself whether you are living your highest values. Are you spending quality time with your partner and children? Are you exercising three times a week? Are you active in a human rights organization? Do you put time aside to listen to music at home and attending and, and attend concerts? This exercise raises a mirror to your life and helps you determine whether or not there's congruence, integrity between your highest values and the way you live. With increased integrity comes increased happiness. Given that we're often blind to the discrepancy between what we say is important to us and what we actually do, it may be useful to do this exercise with someone who knows you well and cares about you enough to be willing to help you evaluate your life honestly. How much time we choose to spend on our highest values depends on personal preferences and availability. Just because family is my highest value does not imply that to increase my integrity and therefore happiness, I need to reallocate all the time I currently spend on my hobby to my family. Remember the lasagna principle. A person who must work two jobs to get enough food on the table for his family is living in accordance with his highest values, even though he gets to spend little time playing with his children. Often, however, we are pulled away from the life that would make us happier by internal and external forces that we have some control over, such as our habits, our fears, or other people's expectations. Given that time is a finite and limited resource, we may need to give up some activities that are lower on our list of importance. Say no to certain opportunities so that we can say yes to ones that are more valuable to us. Repeat this exercise regularly. Change, especially of deeply ingrained habits and patterns, does not happen overnight. Most important, once again, is to ritualize your activities. In order to cre- in, a co- in addition to create a habit of activities that you want to engage in, introduce negative rituals, times during which you refrain from doing certain things. For example, if feasible, create an internet free ta- a free time zone. Each day between certain hours, we spend an increasing amount of time on the web. Checking our email every few minutes takes us away from our productivity and creativity and ultimately makes us less happy. You can also introduce phone-free or meeting-free time zones when you fully focus on other activities, whether getting work done or spending time with your friends. So that is the chapter, Happiness Explained. Um, 
I do think, you know, the one, the two things in this uh, exercise that um, that jumped out at me is, um, you know, the fact that it, it really comes down to where we feel we are in control or what we can control. So our habits, our fears, and other people's expectations, that clearly um, is to me the linchpin here. That is the linchpin because that will, you know, the opposite of traction is distraction. Distraction pulls us away. You know, actually, interestingly enough, you know, if I am to couple that insight with what we heard today with motion, emotion, motives and motivation in the pursuit of happiness, you know, what tells me is sometimes we are moving, but we're not always moving in the right direction. So distraction moves us away from our purpose, from our meaning, you know, from our um, from ultimately our life force, traction pulls us towards so that we are in motion both ways. The question is whether we are moving towards or away from. And I feel that our habits and our fears, um, external expectations, limiting mindsets will always pull us away, whereas the abundance mindset, whereas being able to live this life with meaning uh, and be happy in the present, both current and future, will pull us towards traction towards where we need to go. Um, the only other point I wanted to make here is, um, you know, I actually write this now in Forever Changed, um, that um, it's not necessarily incongruous with what we just read because some people literally don't have a choice. They don't have a choice. They have to. I mean, in, in South Africa, it's unbelievable. There are people that live in what we call the townships and um and they live in still these shanty towns, these corrugated, you know, cardboard as we used to call them, or you know, like uh, uh, aluminium, aluminium uh, siding, um, you know, shanty shacks. Um, and they commute, have to commute, you know, uh, crammed into you know what's called a combi, um, into a minivan, um, you know, and maybe their commute is an hour every day, maybe it's an hour and a half every day um, to get to work. Um, and and they have no choice. And there are people that absolutely have to, you know, whether it's the Metro North or, you know, wherever they're living, you know, getting on the subway every morning. I'm thinking obviously living in the Northeast, but people that might have to commute two hours to work, two hours from work, and they don't have a choice. What I say, you know, in in the book is if you were miserable before the pandemic, why would you return to it? You know, if you if you built this commute into your job, into your life, you know, if you wasted four hours a day on this commute to, you know, to exist in your cube form like a rat, you know, in the rat race, um, why would you go back to it? This all assumes and implies you have a choice. So you may not have a choice. But if you do have a choice, now is the time to make that choice in order to you know, pursue the question of questions, how to achieve lasting happiness, both present and future need states, pleasure in the present and purpose in the future. So that's all I got today, 8.55 a.m. If anyone would like to jump on stage for the final five minutes, um, I would love to uh, hear from you. And... Um, it would be awesome. So anyone anyone want to raise their hand? 
Um, I'll go ahead and stop the recording for the podcast version. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.